thank you guys for coming once again. I know that I, I say that every single time. It's just kind of a pattern that I get into. Sometimes I repeat things I don't even realize that I'm repeating them. I just say them. Um, like, got some new fan art for you, or let's get into it, or thanks for watching, guys. I notice uh, Philip DeFranco actually repeats the same things every single day, every single episode. It's kind of funny. Okay, so last time we finished up section one. So now we're on section two. This is chapter five. Okay, let's get into it then. Before we get into paragraph one, let me just like read the focus and things. So here's chapter five. This is chapter five. The title is See the Evil Detestable Things That They're Doing. Uh, the focus is Apostate Judah's Spiritual and Moral Decline. As I'm sure a lot of you guys know, Jehovah's Witnesses have some choice uh, beliefs about apostates. And as I'm sure a lot of you also know, apostate actually translates to runaway slave. So I wear it as a badge of pride. But uh, let's see what choice things they have to say about apostates here. Here's paragraph one. As the son of a priest, the prophet Ezekiel is well-versed in the Mosaic law. So he's familiar with the temple in Jerusalem and the pure worship of Jehovah that should be carried out there. But now, in 612 BCE, that's happening at Jehovah's Temple, I'm sorry, what's happening at Jehovah's Temple would shock any faithful Jew, including Ezekiel. Paragraph 2. Jehovah wants Ezekiel to see the deplorable conditions at the temple and then to tell the elders of Judah, fellow Jewish exiles gathered in his house, what he sees. Read Ezekiel 8, 1-4. Okay, um... Let's, let's just give that a read real quick. Ezekiel 8, 1 to 4. It says, Idolatry in the temple. It says, In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day, while I was sitting in my house, and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, the hand of the sovereign Lord came on, to, uh, came on me there. <laughs> I looked, and I saw a figure like that of a man. From what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire, and from there up, his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the, uh, the hair of my head. The Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven, and in visions of God, he took me to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court, where the idol that provokes to jealousy stood. And there before me was the glory of the God of Israel, as in the vision I had seen in the plain. Weird. Okay, that's bizarre. Really, really bizarre. Okay. So, it's basically saying this guy on this day saw a figure of a man that was glowing like hot metal, uh, stretched out a hand to him, grabbed him by the hair, Lifted him up in the air, like really high up in the air, and yeah, and then and and showed him an idol apparently that provokes to jealousy. Oh, okay, whatever. Anyway, uh, so let's continue. Let's just step back one sentence on this paragraph. Jehovah wants Ezekiel to see the deplorable conditions at the temple and then to tell the elders of Judah fellow Jewish exiles gathered in his, in his house what he sees. Then it says, read Ezekiel 
8, 1-4. By means of Holy Spirit, Jehovah transports Ezekiel in vision from his house to Tel Abib near the river Chebar in Babylon, hundreds of miles west to, uh, to Jerusalem. Jehovah sets the prophet down in the temple at the north gate of the inner courtyard. Starting here, Jehovah takes him by means of a vision on a tour of the temple. Okay. All right, so here's paragraph three. I, I, I guess what what's happening here is they're just kind of describing events. They're just describing something that happened in this vision. That's That's what I'm taking away from this. So, nothing really to to drill down on yet. So, all right, let's take a look at paragraph three here. Ezekiel now observes four shocking scenes that reflect the utter spiritual collapse of the nation. What has happened to the pure worship of Jehovah? Oh, they said the title of the book again. And what meaning uh, does this vision have for us today? Let us join Ezekiel on his tour. First, though, we need to consider what Jehovah rightly expects of his worshipers. Rightly expects of his worshipers. Notice that. Okay. That makes me think that they're going to say some controversial shit in a minute. All right. So here's the next subheading. It's called, I, ellipsis, dot, 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 I, dot, 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 am a God who requires exclusive devotion. I know this is going to say some messed up shit. All right. Let's see what they have to say. This is paragraph four. Some nine centuries before Ezekiel's day, Jehovah clearly stated what he requires of his worshipers. In the second of the Ten Commandments, he told the Israelites, I, Jehovah your God, am a God who requires exclusive devotion. By the expression, exclusive devotion, quote-unquote, Jehovah indicated that he would not tolerate the worship of any other gods. As we saw in chapter 2 of this publication, the first requirement of pure worship is that the recipient of our religious devotion must be Jehovah. Now, let me just pause here for a second. Isn't Jehovah supposedly the only God? Why is Jehovah so concerned with people worshiping other gods that, that purportedly aren't real, right? Isn't Jehovah the only one? Why is he so worried that people are going to go off and worship a golden calf or something? Like, who cares? Who cares? Let them do their thing. They don't have to worship God if they don't want. Kylie doesn't have to love me if she doesn't want. Nobody has to love anybody if they don't want to. Uh, Respect and love is earned, not automatically given by default. Okay, so it says, As we saw in chapter 2 of this publication, the first requirement of pure worship is that the recipient of our religious devotion is Jehovah. The worshipers have to give him the first place in their lives. Put simply, Jehovah expects his worshipers to keep spiritually clean by not mixing true worship with false. Ugh. In 1513 BCE, the, Isra- the Israelites willingly entered into the law covenant. By doing so, they agreed to give exclusive devotion to Jehovah. Jehovah is loyal to his covenants, and he expected similar loyalty from his covenant people. Okay, really fascinating. Um, 
It's a really strange dynamic that the Israelites set up between themselves and this God that they fabricated, in my eyes. I mean, I know I have some Christian viewers on here, and that's, that's fine, but I'm just going to state things as I see them. It, it just feels to me like these people just made up a God. In fact, as far as I know, I could be wrong here, but I, I believe that Yahweh was part of a... What's the word for it? Pantheon? Yeah, okay. It was a, it was part of a pantheon, which means it was part of a group of gods. It wasn't just a single god at first. Yahweh was one of many different gods from a pantheon. Um, and eventually, they kind of picked Yahweh out. They liked that one. They made him the god, their god, and built a whole lore around him. But there's like... there's sub-lore to Yahweh from this original pantheon that he came from. It's really, really fascinating stuff. And in fact, the Bible actually mentions the names of other gods. Doesn't, I mean, from that same pantheon that Yahweh is from. Doesn't really go into detail about them. Doesn't really, none of that. It's, it, it does mention them, though. And I may end up doing a video about that in the future. I don't know. But uh, anyway... Okay, so that was uh, paragraph four. Here's paragraph five. Was it reasonable for Jehovah to require exclusive devotion from the Israelites? No, wasn't. It wasn't reasonable for Jehovah to require anything from the Israelites. Uh, let's just continue. Yes, indeed, He is Almighty God, the Universal Sovereign, and the Source and Sustainer of Life. God, this is so cringy. It's terrible. Jehovah was also the Israelites' deliverer. Deliverer. There's something feels weird about that word. Uh, when giving them the Ten Commandments, He reminded the people, "I am Jehovah your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery." Clearly, Jehovah deserved the exclusive place in the hearts of the Israelites. This is killing me. Okay, here's number six. Jehovah does not change. He, is, he has never wavered in his insistence on exclusive devotion. Imagine, then, how he must have felt about the four disturbing scenes that he now showed to Ezekiel in vision. Okay, now, this says Jehovah does not change. I dispute that claim. I completely disagree. Now, I can't go into detail here. Um, in fact, by the time a lot of people see this, it'll probably already been said and done. You can probably go to my main channel and find this. But uh, there's going to be a video about a letter that was written to one of my cousins uh, by my mother. And I just got my hands on the letter. He just sent it to me and told me it was okay if I put it on the channel. Um, and in that letter, she talked about disfellowshipping and disassociating and how Jehovah does not change and he didn't like it when you you know, talked to or said hi to disfellowshipped people before in the Bible times, and he doesn't like it now, so on and so forth. Jehovah does change, okay? Either that or 
the Bible is wrong. One of the two things, because the Bible depicts Jehovah as changing or depicts God as changing over time. A lot of things about God changed over time. His personality being the least among them. I mean, look at the Old Testament and look at the New Testament and compare those two gods. One was uh, all about peace, love, and happiness, and the other was about fire and brimstone. And depending on what kind of a Christian you are, what kind of a person you are in your heart, you either latch on to the peace and love one or the fire and brimstone one. That's why you can be a Christian like the Westboro Baptist Church Christians and still call yourself a Christian and still say you're following God's commandments and his guidance. Or you can be a super liberal Methodist, don't hate anybody, have a gay guy for your pastor kind of Christian and still be following the Bible in, in a, a certain way. Because a lot of the time, I, I mean, the, there are verses in the Bible that support any position, any position. I mean, there, there is a verse in the Bible that says, love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, hating anybody for anything is, uh, for all intents and purposes, completely debunked. Like, you, you shouldn't be hating anybody for anything based on that verse. But Christians would rather not read that verse. Some Christians, some fundamentalist, violent, angry Christians would rather read the verse where God committed genocide on this group of people or that group of people because he didn't like them. Like Stephen Anderson's a good example. That, uh, that fundamentalist pastor or the Westboro Baptist Church, Fred Phelps, you know? I mean, there's, there's a verse in the Bible to support any position, pretty much. Yeah, and there are contradictions all through it, just beginning to end. Actually, let me just show you this. Uh, if you're watching the... the or the... Um, if you guys are watching the YouTube video, I'm going to pull up a website about Bible contradictions. It is called Bibviz, I think. Bibviz. Yeah, it's bibviz.com. Really, really fascinating website. Um, you can go to it and and it'll show you like lines to just different contradictions. Where did Moses receive the Ten Commandments? There are contradictions on that. Uh, let's see. Exodus 31.18. Okay, so we have on Mount Sinai, and that is supported by Exodus 31.18, Exodus 34.4, uh, 34.32, and then Leviticus 26.46, Leviticus 27.34, and then Nehemiah 9.13. And then we have another that says on Mount Horeb. And 1 Kings 8, 9 supports Mount Horeb. 2 Chronicles 5, 10 and Malachi 4, 4 support those. So which is it? Is it Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb? And why does the Bible contradict itself on that? I mean, it, it's an insane number of contradictions. Absolutely insane. So, okay, I kind of got off track there, but I thought that was really, really fascinating. You guys should definitely go check that website out. It is... B-I-B-V-I-Z.com. Maybe I'll cover it on, in, in one of my videos one of these days. Really, really cool stuff. Okay, let's continue on. I believe we were, let's see. Yeah, we, we finished up a paragraph six. So let's take a look at the next subheading. It's called 
First scene, the idolatrous symbol of jealousy. It says, read Ezekiel 5, uh, I'm sorry, read Ezekiel 8, 5, and 6. So let's just take a quick look-see there. Read Ezekiel 8, 5, and 6. It says, Then he said to me, Son of man, look toward the north. So I looked, and in the entrance north of the gate of the altar, I saw this idol of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing? The utterly detestable things the Israelites are doing here. Things that will drive me far from my sanctuary. But you will see things that are even more detestable. So that was um, the beginning of paragraph 7. says to read Ezekiel 8, 5, and 6. So here's the rest of paragraph 7. Uh, Ezekiel must have been shocked. At the northern gate of the temple, apostate Jews were worshipping an idolatrous symbol or image. It was perhaps a sacred pole representing Asherah, the false goddess that the Canaanites viewed as the wife of Baal. Whatever it was, those idolatrous Israelites violated the terms of their covenant with Jehovah by giving to an image the devotion that rightfully and exclusively belonged to Jehovah, they incited God to jealousy. They provoked him to righteous anger. Just think, for over 400 years, the temple sanctuary had been associated with Jehovah's presence. But now, by bringing idolatry right into the temple area, those idolaters made Jehovah go far away from his sanctuary. Okay... But now, by bringing idolatry right into the temple area, those idolaters made Jehovah go far away from his sanctuary. So they're saying that because people were worshiping some kind of false idols or gods or whatever, um, it kind of scared Jehovah away. He was afraid or something. I don't know. Oh, Jehovah is not afraid of anything. Um, okay, so that was paragraph seven. Interesting. Here's number eight. What meaning does Ezekiel's vision of the symbol of jealousy have for our day? Apostate Judah certainly reminds us of Christendom. Now, for regular people that, that were never Jehovah's Witness, Christendom is um, everybody that's not Jehovah's Witness, pretty much. It's, it's false religion. Worldwide body or society of Christians, yeah. Christendom is, they view it as evil and wrong. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses do. I don't think that it's intended to be that way. Like, I don't think the, the word was intended to mean that originally, but that's how Jehovah's Witnesses use it. They use it as false religion, basically. False Christianity. Okay. Let me find where I was. Okay. Apostate Judah certainly reminds us of Christendom. Idolatry is widespread in the churches of Christendom, which makes invalid any devotion that the people claim to give to God. Since Jehovah does not change, which he does, we can be sure that Christendom, like, apo uh, like apostate Judah, has provoked his righteous anger. Surely, Jehovah is far away from this distorted form of Christianity. I love how Jehovah's Witnesses basically call every form of Christianity distorted and wrong and apostate, except for theirs. It just kills me. Their hypocrisy is just so glaring and disgusting in many ways. I don't know how they can possibly make the claims that they make and, 
and honestly believe you know what it is they they make these grandiose crazy out there claims and they say we couldn't have possibly known this this doesn't have any connection to reality we couldn't have known this information unless jehovah gave it to us and it's like either that put a pin in that could be that or bear with me he didn't give you anything you're just full of shit that's another possibility that we haven't considered yet. So maybe we should consider that one. Okay, that was paragraph eight. Here's uh, paragraph number nine. What warning lesson can we learn from those idolaters in the temple? To render exclusive devotion to Jehovah, we must flee from idolatry. We might think, I would never use images or symbols in my worship of Jehovah, but idolatry comes in various forms, some more subtle than others. One Bible reference work puts it this way, one may think of idolatry as a metaphor for other goods, anything of value, worth, or power that becomes our ultimate concern to the exclusion of God. Idolatry, then, can include material possessions, money, sex, entertainment, Really, anything that could take first place in our lives and thus replace the exclusive devotion that's due to Jehovah. We must guard against every form of idolatry because Jehovah has exclusive claim to our hearts and our worship. Okay, I love this paragraph. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you guys an example of something, and you tell me if you think it's idolatry, okay? People have criticized the Watchtower Society, saying that the JW.org logo is being idolized. Because Jehovah's Witnesses talk about the cross as an idol. So even if they, even if Jehovah's Witnesses didn't believe that, or I'm sorry, even if they did believe that Jesus died on a cross, either way, they'd still feel like it was an idol. I mean, you don't see them walking around with little stake necklaces, right? Of course, because they, you know, they believe that Jesus died on a stake, not a cross, for whatever reason. I'll, I'll get into that another time on my channel. So they believe Jesus died on a stake, not a cross, but you don't see him walking around with stake necklaces. That's because they feel like the cross is being used as an idol. People hold it in their hands, they keep one in their pockets, they get them tattooed on them, they, they wear them around their necks, they have earrings with crosses on them, you know, the whole nine yards. So uh, let's just reread this paragraph with the jw.org logo in mind just imagine that they're talking about that it says what warning lesson can we learn from those idolaters in the temple to render exclusive devotion to jehovah we must flee from idolatry we might think i would never use images or symbols the jw.org logo in my worship of jehovah but idolatry comes in various forms some more subtle than others one Bible reference work puts it this way. One Bible reference work. I'm pretty confident they're talking about the, the Watchtower or the Awake or something. One Bible reference work puts it this way. One may think of idolatry as a metaphor for other goods. Anything of value, worth, or power that becomes our ultimate concern to the exclusion of God. Idolatry, then, can include material possessions, money, sex, entertainment, really anything that could take first place in our lives and thus replace the exclusive devotion of that uh, that is due to Jehovah. Like, say, for example, the Watchtower Society 
or Jehovah's Witnesses the religion or the governing body? I mean, it seems to me that they are taking, uh, they're replacing the exclusive devotion that's due to God. Uh, in fact, they pretty much use uh, the governing body and Jehovah interchangeably at this point. Uh, they didn't always do that. It wasn't always like that. But it is now. They use the governing body and Jehovah interchangeably, or the Watchtower Society and Jehovah, or Jehovah's Witnesses and Jehovah. I mean, it's all muddied waters at this point. We must guard against every form of idolatry because Jehovah has exclusive claim to our hearts and our worship. A lot of ex-Jehovah's Witnesses really feel like the JW.org logo is an idol at this point because it's on everything. Okay, so that was number nine. Here's ten. The first scene that Jehovah showed Ezekiel involved terrible, detestable things. Yet Jehovah told his faithful prophet, you will see detestable things that are even more terrible. What could be more terrible than the worship of that idolatrous symbol of jealousy in the temple area? Okay, so here's the next paragraph. The subheading is, Second scene, 70 elders offering incense to false gods. It says, read Ezekiel 8, 7 through 12. I bet this one's going to be really long. Then he brought me to the entrance to the court. I looked and I saw a hole in the wall. He said to me, son of man, now dig into the wall. So I dug into the wall and saw a doorway there. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked and detestable things they're doing here. So I went in and looked. Okay, so uh, this guy's being told to dig under the wall and or dig into the wall and see what they're doing in this city, I guess, uh, in this court. It's an entrance to a court. Go in and see what the wicked and uh, see the wicked and detestable things they're doing here. So I went in and looked, and I saw portrayed all over the walls all kinds of crawling things and unclean animals and uh, all the idols of Israel. In front of them stood seventy elders of Israel. And uh, Jazaniah, I think, uh, and Jazaniah, son of Stephan, or Stephan, was standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand, C-E-N-S-E-R, and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of Israel are doing in the darkness? each at the shrine of his own idol. They say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Okay. So they're basically saying, have you seen what the elders of Israel are doing in the darkness, each at the shrine of his own idol? They say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the, the land. I assume that's supposed to be God. Okay. Interesting. So that's Ezekiel 8, 7 to 12. Boring, uh, boring through a wall and entering the inner courtyard near the temple altar... Ezekiel now saw disturbing wall carvings of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the disgusting idols. Those wall carvings represented false gods. There's a claim. The Bible did not say that, did it? I, it's possible that I, it did and I just misread it, but I don't believe it said the wall carvings represented false gods. That's just a claim they're making here. They're they're assuming that's what it means, or they're prophesying. They're interpreting what this book is saying, this, this, this Bible book is saying, because they have the right to do that, because they have, you know, they're anointed. They're God's chosen people, the faithful and discreet slave. They're chosen by God to interpret his book for him. 
So here they're saying those wall carvings represented false gods. That's their claim with zero evidence. They don't need evidence because they're prophets of God. Even more disturbing is what Ezekiel saw next. Seventy of the elders of the house of Israel were standing in the darkness and offering incense to the false gods. Under the law, the burning of sweet-smelling incense represented the acceptable prayers offered up by faithful worshipers. However, the incense that those seventy elders offered up to false gods was an unholy stench to Jehovah. God. Their prayers were like an offensive odor to him. Those elders fooled themselves into thinking, Jehovah is not seeing us. But Jehovah did see them, and he showed Ezekiel exactly what they were doing in his temple. That's that's really fascinating. Just watching the the gears turn in their in the in the heads of the governing body, in the heads of the people who wrote this. Really fascinating stuff. I think I've probably mentioned this multiple times on my channel, but when my sister was really little, I think about eight years old, she was changing clothes under the kitchen table because she didn't want Jehovah to see her changing clothes. Uh, that is a testament to how serious Jehovah's Witnesses are supposed to take it. That's a testament to... Uh, how deeply Jehovah's Witnesses believe God watches you 24/7. You don't you don't get a break in between Jehovah watching you as a Jehovah's Witness. He sees everything you do. He sees everything. So it's kind of strange to me that Jehovah's Witnesses believe that that Jehovah sees everything. But here in the Bible, right here, is a part that's saying. They, they didn't think Jehovah could see them. I mean, these are early Christians. These are people who were following the correct God, quote-unquote, according to Jehovah's Witnesses at one point. Why did they think that God couldn't see them? They should have known that God could see them if that was solid, guaranteed doctrine. I mean, if that was doctrine from the beginning, God sees all. Uh, what's it called? Omniscient? If it's doctrine that God is omniscient, they shouldn't have assumed for even a second that he wasn't omniscient. And what about the verses in Genesis, the early parts, maybe Genesis 1, 2, or 3, and or 3, uh, where it talks about God being in human form, coming down to earth, and looking for Adam and Eve, calling for them, could not find them. Is he omniscient or not? Does he know everything or not? Can he see everything or not? Because the Bible is not depicting him that way. And it's it's bizarre if he is, if that's what the Bible intended from day one for us to understand that he's omniscient, it's bizarre that it's not depicting him that way. So which is it? Okay. Uh, I'll tell you which one it is. He's not real. It's that easy. It's not real. Uh, the Bible contradicts itself at every turn about God's attributes. One day, you know, in one verse he's omniscient, in the next he's not. In one verse he's all powerful, in the next he's not. It's just, it's just ridiculous. Okay, so here's paragraph twelve. What can we learn from Ezekiel's account of those seventy Israelite elders who offered incense to false gods? 
For our prayers to be heard by God and to keep our worship pure in his eyes, we must remain faithful even in the darkness. Let us keep in mind that Jehovah's all-seeing eyes are ever open, uh, are ever upon us. Here's Jehovah's Witnesses pressing that idea that Jehovah is watching literally every move you make, every second of the day and night, everything. He sees everything. This right here, this kind of thing, this is why my sister was changing clothes under the kitchen table, because they instill this fear in you. There's a dictator that's watching you 24-7. It's like Big Brother from from, um, the book 1984 by George Orwell. I don't know if you guys have ever read that. Really, really good book. It's just like that. It's like Big Brother. There are cameras everywhere. There are people watching everywhere. Except in this case, Jehovah's Witnesses are fabricating the cameras. They're telling people that the cameras are there watching them when they really aren't. And that affects you. Even coming out of it all these years later, I still have this... I still have remnants from that. I believed that Satan watched everything I did too. So when I was young, young, like six, seven, eight, nine, ten, I wasn't really breaking any rules, you know, by Jehovah's Witnesses standards. There was a point in time where I lied a lot. You know, I was a little kid. Little kids lie. And I was convinced I wasn't going to get into the new system, get into paradise, because I was lying so much. And I told that to my mom. Uh, but that's a story for another day. My real fear as as a young Jehovah's Witness, you know, pre-10 years old, my real fear wasn't Jehovah watching me so much as Satan watching me. I was... I, came to the understanding that Satan saw every move I made, too. He was omniscient also. And for that reason, I would, you know, I don't know why, but when I was young, the idea of the worst way to die crossed my mind. Like, what's the worst way to die? And for that reason, since I thought Satan saw and heard everything, I would, I refused to say the worst way to die because I believed that Satan would when Armageddon came would ensure that that is how I died of course at the time I felt like the worst way to die was either drowning or burning alive um so anyway I just you know I thought that was really interesting for a young kid to be afraid to say something like that for fear some invisible character overhears him and ensures that that happens. I don't know. It's just so many really deep issues come from from this religion that people don't even realize are there. People don't, don't even realize it affected them in that deep, traumatic way, sometimes ever. I, I, I'm still finding, I mean, 10, 11, 12 years later, I'm still finding ways in which it affects my life adversely. Even after reassessing everything that I ever believed, still finding ways it affects me adversely. 
So anyway, okay. So I believe, um, yeah, okay, let's continue. I was on paragraph 12. It says, let us keep in mind that Jehovah's all-seeing eyes are ever upon us. If Jehovah is real to us, whole bunch of pictures, skips down like three pages, we will do anything, oh, wait a minute. It says, if Jehovah is real to us, we will not do anything in private that we know is displeasing to him. Like I said, this right here. This is why my sister was changing clothes under the table. This is why I was afraid to say what I believed was the worst way to die. Especially must, uh, especially must congregation elders set a good example in Christian living. Congregation members rightly expect that an elder who stands before them uh, and leads them in worship at a meeting is living by Bible principles, even in the darkness, that is, when others may not see him. That's the end of the subheading. That's really fascinating stuff. Just the mindset behind all of this. the, Just everything about it. It's really fascinating and it's really, really sad. It's really depressing to see how they affect people. To see what they're doing to people. A lot of new drawings. A lot of new pictures. And there's a little section in here. It says, Son of man, do you see this? The four disgusting things that Ezekiel saw in the courtyard in the temple. And it's pictures depicting uh, what Ezekiel saw, according to the Bible, once he bored a hole through the wall and looked inside. It's just people kind of bowing down to some weird statue-looking thing. Idolatrous symbol of jealousy. And then 70 elders offering incense to false gods. It shows a smoke-filled room. <laughs> Uh, and then we've got women weeping over the god Tammuz, or T-A-M-M-U-Z, Tammuz, Tammuz, I don't know. And then we've got 25 men bowing down to the sun, just a bunch of people standing outside a temple on their knees, uh, bowing down. And then there's another picture of kind of like a, a smoke-filled room, uh, just depicting that. But anyway, it, it traumatizes people, it traumatizes children and adults. It traumatizes people who are involved in this, and it's it's really sad to see. So anyway, yeah, I appreciate you guys coming on and giving this a listen. I think that's where we're going to stop for now. Uh, next subheading is called... Oh, wait a minute. Let me find where we were. Third scene. Women weeping over the god Tammuz. Yeah, okay. There's another one. The next subheading is fourth scene. 25 men bowing down to the sun. So, And then that uh, that chapter is over. So, all right. Well, appreciate you guys coming. I will talk to you next week.